Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. Welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to dig a little bit into mental health. We're going to be digging a little bit into the process of training mental health professionals a little bit. We're going to hit on following your passion. We're also going to hit on making an impact in your community and how you can you can do that in a way that's accessible and really rooted in servant leadership and helping people to move more towards helping themselves. So today's guest has come to our audience as somebody who's been highly recommended, is somebody who has a great reputation in the world for helping people to help themselves, and is just a, a really all-around great guy and an avid cyclist, I, I came to learn. So Dr. John Ogrognichuk, is with us today on the podcast. He's a professor at the University of British Columbia. He's involved in many other community-based causes. He's a father. He's a husband. He's just an all-around really interesting guy and has a great story to share about how he's spreading impact in the community. So, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great. So, I mean, here's a guy from Alberta who found his way to BC. It's, it's funny how that works, hey? <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> so, so John, for our listeners, maybe why don't you tell them a little bit about who you are and what some of your work is and what led you to beautiful Vancouver, BC? As you said, I grew up in Alberta, a bunch of small towns throughout, but mostly in a little community called Rimby, Alberta. And I did all my post-secondary education in Alberta. I started at Red Deer College and then University mm -hmm. of Calgary, University of Alberta, and then came out to Vancouver to do a postdoctoral fellowship and haven't left. It's just too nice. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of all our families still in Alberta, we can't leave this paradise. But So that, that's just a little bit about how I got here. Uh, for the people listening today, I really want you to pay attention to what John is saying here, because he's going to leave some really interesting crumbs along the way of the journey. And with his work, he is renowned by many people as really helping to increase accessibility to tools that can help around mental health. So we're going to be getting in. I feel like I didn't frame it very well on the front here, but we're going to be talking about mental health a little bit here today. And we are going to be talking about the relationship between mental health and brain health. And I can't really think of a better guest to unpack some of this for you today than John. So John is going to be talking, and he's quite a humble guy, So, but that's okay because we always like humble people. Please listen up, though, to his message. So here's a fellow who was raised in Alberta, did the first part of graduate school at a great school, the University of Alberta, and then came over to the University of British Columbia to do some postdoc work. So there we are. What, what, what was the focus at that time, though? What was the big dream, the goal, when you're at UC, U of A, and then on your way to UBC? Mark, I, I wish I could tell you that I had a clearly laid out plan, but I'd be lying. I really didn't quite know what I was going for other than I knew I was interested in psychology and in psychotherapy in particular, and kind of just found my way. You know, I stuck my nose in different places, took different opportunities as they came, including the postdoc here. So I was hired as a postdoc uh, fellow in psychotherapy research, and that's still what I do today. You know, that is 
the main part of my role as a professor here in the Department of Psychiatry at UBC. But I'm also curious. I, I like learning new things. I like, you know, engaging my mind in different ways and different areas. And one of the areas that I became more and more interested in was men's mental health. My psychotherapy practice has always been, you know, geared toward men, although, you know, I treat men and women. But just over time, it's evolved to be right now, it's exclusively men. It's been that way for a few years. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, from a research aspect, I have a colleague, John Oluf, and here at UBC as well. And he and I, geez, I think it's about 15 years ago now, started Canada's only, and I think still only, men's mental health research program. And that's been a really amazing journey. We've been in, engaging colleagues here at UBC, but also around the world, uh, different places in Australia and Switzerland, Germany. So it's it's been uh, a fun ride. But one of the things that, you know, through our work, it became, you know, really apparent is male suicide. So a lot of people don't recognize the fact that suicide is actually the second leading cause of death among men under the age of 50. You know, about three quarters of suicide deaths every year in Canada are by men. And we don't talk about it. And, it, it, wow. you know, it's tantamount to a public health crisis, but it's a silent crisis because of the lack of attention that it gets. So knowing that and acknowledging that what we're sort of doing in the space, broadly speaking, isn't working. So we had to try to do something different. We wanted to try to engage with men in a different way. And so we looked to the internet really as a way to do that because you know what do most of us do if we're not feeling well we're feeling different don't really know what's going on we often go to google start typing in symptoms and try to do some sort of self-assessment and so we said well let's try to tap into that and so try to create you know an e-space if you will for guys because there was literally nothing out there for men And so we wanted to give men a space that was for them and about them. And that's what Heads Up Guys was. That's so cool. And kudos to you. I mean, what part of you being curious really led you down that road? You know, was that was that part of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, as I said, I, you know, I'm a psychotherapy researcher doing lots of, I still think, interesting things. But then, you know, one of the things that is pretty clear in in mental health research, not just within the realm of psychotherapy in particular, is that there's a predominance of women. Men rarely are part mm. of studies. And in fact, clinically, you know, you could go to any outpatient psychiatry clinic and about 70% of the people are, are women, only about 30% are men. Men just aren't going to services in the same at the same kind of rate that women are. And so, and it's not because they're healthier, you know, you know, I wish <laughs> that was the case, but it's not. And so they just weren't going. And so that sort of made me wonder, you know, what is it, you know, how can we get the guys that sort of understand what's going on? Why aren't they reaching out for help? What are some of the barriers? What are some of the facilitators? What works mm-hmm. for them? So all these kinds of questions became, you know, ideas for us as we engaged in research in in that men's mental health space. That's so cool. So, you know, when we think about this whole concept, how was it received initially when you first kind of launched this this heads up, guys, which all the links will be in the show notes. They'll be clickable that, that we can just go to. But when you think about this, even when you're at UBC doing what you do at UBC, which is training 
you know, mental health professionals of tomorrow. Was there any resistance to you doing this? Was there any hesitation from colleagues or was it widely supported? And like, I'm just curious when you take on something new like that. I think it was actually broadly acknowledged that it was something that was needed. If there was any, not necessarily resistance, but a, maybe a question. And it's like, why, why men? Why not, why not women as well? Why isn't there a heads right. up gals, for example? And I said, well, this is because too many men are killing themselves and we need to do something different to engage them. So we can try to stop that. And that's the reality. And it's, it's not like we're privileging men's health in some ways. It's like, we need to do something different. We need to reach them. We need to connect with them because that isn't happening. And, and, you know, our reality, you know, broadly speaking, is that women are much better advocates at advocating for their own health. They're, they're better at that. Guys don't do such a good job at that. And so we have to be more active in reaching out to them. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that, for sure. When you looked at this whole uh, concept of men's mental health and the, you know, there was a real discrepancy between the size of the problem in suicide and the people going to get services. And that's what led to the creation of, of this digital platform that's now, you know, very scalable and available. What compelled you to actually, because that surely that would have taken a lot of work and you're already a really busy guy. How did you make that happen? Uh, I wish I knew. It is a lot of work, especially <laughs> for somebody like me. Like, I'm the least technologically sophisticated person that you'll come across. So it, it seems a bit odd that I'd be working in an area that's relying on digital technologies. But I wanted to do it, so I found the time. And, it. It, you know, I, it wasn't a solo effort. You know, I, I have worked and continue to work with a lot of really, really great people. And when we developed Heads Up Guys, you know, it took the better part of a couple of years to bring that about. And you hire the right people, uh, you know, with, with sort of the, the right values and, and principles in place to really want to put in a real good effort to make this something really special. And I think we've done that. You know, people are often very surprised at how small of a staff we have uh, relative to sort of the kind of predominance that we have in, in the digital space, you know, with regards to men's mental health. So I think, you know, we really punch above our weight class. It's really a testament to, you know, a collective effort that we see this as something really important. And we, we do truly want to make a difference. I love that. I love what you said. And for context, for the people that are listening, obviously for mental health purposes, but also for creating something new out of passion. Why don't you help the audience, the listeners understand where you started? So what was the year? And what was it like? How many people were accessing the material and from where to where it is now? Yeah, so we uh, sort of conceptualized the idea in 2013 and worked for, like I said, for the better part of two years, really hard. It was really hard work. I did not used to have gray hair before this, <laughs> but now I do. It won't go away. So in 2015, we launched Heads Up Guys, June 15th, I believe. And it was during Men's Health Week. And we really did not have any, truly, we did not have any idea of what to expect. You know, you could build the world's best website and nobody comes to it and it's a colossal failure in, in a way. 
but it got traction and, you know, it got a lot of attention early on. You know, their CBC did a syndication of radio interviews across their stations throughout Canada. We got a lot of great public press locally as well. And so that really helped shine a light on not only our, our resource, but the issue of depression and suicidality amongst men more generally. And since that time, we've grown to have about 60,000 people roughly wow. per month. We've had three and a half million visitors in total. And this is from all over the world. It's, you know, at first we thought at best we'd be a, a national resource, but it's grown way beyond that. And I think it's illustrating the fact that there's really not anything out there for men. And so no matter where you are, whether it's England, Germany, New Zealand, Canada, people are looking for the same help. And, you know, we're one of the few places that guys can find that help. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. You know, what a journey. And you think about the amount of impact taking that action, those two years that were no doubt extremely challenging. And surely at times, there were there may have been moments where you thought I can't do this, you know, this is too hard. <laughs> there were, you know, oh, there had to have been. Do you ever reflect on that for yourself? Like, like when you were close to maybe not doing it, and then thinking, reverse engineering it, and thinking, wow, had we not done that, maybe some guy in Australia may not be hanging with his family right now. It's really true, Mark, and you know, you nailed it on the head. Is that it was hard. There are many times I question you know, why I was doing it. And, and it wasn't just me. Like I said, there, there was yeah. a team of us. So it was hard for everyone. But, you know, I had a leadership role in trying to bring this idea to fruition. So I felt, uh, you know, a heavy burden of responsibility with that. But yeah, when we when we get messages from people, and it happens every day, people just go to our info account, you know, email account, and they share their story. And there are countless times that at some point at the end of the message, there's something like, thank you for saving my life. Like literally, wow. I wouldn't be here today without you. And when you think about it, even if it's one person yeah. and they said, I wouldn't be here without you, you know, heads up guys, not me personally. It's, you know, it's pretty humbling and yeah. it makes the effort all the worthwhile. And, and so sometimes, you know, we can lose sight of, you know, the work and, you know, are we really making a difference? How do we really know that? And then somebody says, you know, thanks for saving my life. And it's like right there. That's all you need. Oh, I love it. And and it really does start with that education, you know, on the on the front end first. And then from that, that that self-exploration, that's what I love so much about the tool. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about that, you know, that process? Again, we can go to heads up guys, you punch over to the website, you check it out. You get there, you get some nice information in the front, but then why don't you talk a little bit more about how that how that process worked? Yeah, so there, there's a couple of things. One, we for the website, we wanted some aspects of greater user engagement because we know that that helps people kind of stay immersed in, in the, the digital experience, if you will, to stay on the site, learn more from it. And so we thought naturally one of the ways to best do that is include a, a depression screening tool. And so we have a digital version of what's called the PHQ-9. It's the world's yeah. most well-validated depression screening tool. It's based on the diagnostic criteria 
for major depression. And so we encourage people to, to use this to, you know, exercise in a little bit of reflection about their own health. You know, a lot of times this is the only, you know, it takes about three minutes to do. It's the only three minutes somebody may have ever spent thinking about their own mental health. And once they do it, based on the results, we give them different action points. Importantly, sharing it with their family doc to start the conversation and, and work toward developing a recovery plan. And since we launched, we've had in excess of a half a million people who have filled this out, which is pretty cool from my perspective. And what it's also indicating that we're hitting our target market, if you will. About three quarters of the people who take the the self-check are screening with probable depression. Mm -hmm. So they're crossing the threshold for probable depression. Many of them are in the moderate to severe range. In fact, 13% at our last tally were indicating suicidal ideation nearly every day. So we know we're getting, you know, the people that we were aiming for to you know, put our resource in front of them and, and help them. I love it. Something I really admire about your journey so far is you're somebody who is in academia, which I love, but is also kind of operating in this other side as well, which is really interesting. And how's that process been for you when researching and training professionals? That's so cool and super exciting. What's it like, though, having balancing these two worlds? And how has this experience influenced the teaching side of your of your life? Well, it's been a challenge because, you know, as researchers, we're not explicitly encouraged to do things sort of on a public service level. You know, everything's, you know, about research. And Heads Up Guys isn't a research tool. It really was meant to be a public health tool. Now we've utilized it to facilitate research. So I think that's a, a wonderful secondary benefit of that. But this was really designed to serve the public. And through that, you know, it, it's turned into kind of like a, a second job that's, you know, it's related to what I do for my regular work as a professor, but it's not sort of bang on. And part of the reason we turned it into a tool to facilitate research is that I'm still paid to do research and I like it. This is what, you know, I was hired to do and this is what I like to do. And to be able to use the engagement that we get to invite people to be a part of knowledge creation to help others is actually really cool to see. And a lot of people, like we get some pretty big sample sizes when we do our, our studies. And, and so that that is showing to me that a lot of people are actually really interested in helping in their own way. They're actually helping us. So yeah. just as much as we may be helping them, they're actually helping us too. That's so cool. I mean, when you go onto the site, you know, it's clear that it's all been rooted for the right reasons. It's all been designed very purposely. And you're always looking to try to understand how do we serve better? You know, are you, are you there's a box? Are you okay? If we collect your information anonymously, it'll help us to better understand how to help them help more. What's your encouragement to other people that are out there, maybe in academia, who are feeling that same pull? Because I, I can appreciate that. I spent a lot of time around academia in my life, as you know. And what's your encouragement to the other professionals that might be out there, maybe struggling with a similar demographic and have not yet heard about your work? What's your encouragement to them? 
Well, I think, you know, a few different messages depending on where people are. You know, if somebody's kind of in the place that I was, we kind of do research for the sake of research and lose sight about trying to make it relevant for the public benefit. And so that's actually one of the things that I wanted to do with my own work is be relevant. <laughs> and, yeah. and so that that was a big impetus behind the work. So I would encourage people if, if their research can be utilized in some way, translated to serve the public, I would encourage it. it it's tough. Sometimes we don't actually know what the first step is to doing that. But talk to people. The more The more that you share what you do and what you would like to do, the more likely you are, you are to engage with people who, who might actually have the right answer about what your next step ought to be. And with regard to, you know, academics that are working in the same space and what relevance our work might have for them, you know, if, they're, if they have a clinical practice to share it, maybe what we've done can serve as a template for their own work, you know, we're about depression and suicidality, but, you know, when you talk about mental health, you know, it's this massive umbrella with so many different angles that you can take. And, you know, we feel just a little tiny slice under that umbrella. So there's tremendous opportunity there for people to, to do something similar with their own work. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And it, it's something that I always find really fascinating because it would be challenging to go from research project to research project when you think about what you know conclusion that research may have uh, reached and to have that not get into community in some way shape or form to better understand that mm -hmm. i'm sure that can be challenging at times when you're in the research side so maybe if you're listening and in research you know it doesn't mean that you have to just go project to project if something really hits home for you and is on purpose with your values you can try to look at how to pursue that further. And John's such a great example of that. So I commend you for that. That's really cool. Oh, thank you. Question, and I think you already answered it, but what was it that really compelled you? Just really succinctly, what was it that compelled you to actually continue to carry this forward? Knowing that we're making a difference in people's lives. You know, those testimonials that we received was really all the evidence that I personally needed to, you know, stay the course. Because there are times, as I said, you, you can question, are we really making a difference? And and doing research on a digital entity is not the same as doing research with, you know, a live intervention, say like psychotherapy or, or could be anything, uh, psychotropic medication. You right. can't approach it in the same way. There's too many variables that are difficult to control. And so we were looking in a way for real live data from people, and that's their testimonials about what they actually thought about the site and whether it actually helped them. Okay. Love it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So you think about here's this guy from Alberta, many different towns, you know, started at Red Deer College, went down to U of C and then up to U of A, now over to UBC. Now I've got, you know, two, you know, accomplished, grown kids. What were some of the main influences along the journey that inspired you to really? take on this work and to continue to pursue it at such a high level? Was there maybe a big article that you that you read in undergrad that really helped to spark the interest or a certain professor or? Something? My mentor was Bill Piper. So I actually came out to Vancouver. Bill and his wife mm -hmm. were here. So Bill was recruited to 
the Department of Psychiatry here. His wife, Martha, was recruited yeah. to be the president of UBC. Yeah. yeah. And I tagged along. <laughs> so <laughs> me, my wife, and our two-month-old daughter, both Bill and Martha have been tremendous people in our lives, mentoring us not, not only as an academic, but but as as people first and foremost. And I think they've had an influence on our life that is difficult to really put into words just how much that's meant. That's so cool. A lot of really good people have entered and been a part of my life and still are that have, have allowed me to do what I do. You know, I, I just, I think I have really good luck. <laughs> that's what it is. And, and, you know, good luck to be around some great people. And, and it's hard to name all of them, but I will name Bill because yeah, that's so cool. It's huge. It's so cool. I mean, this is an audio, you know, primarily audio podcast, but your eyes changed when you mentioned him. And that's yeah. pretty cool. That's powerful. Very cool. And I appreciate your authenticity and vulnerability with that. It's so cool uh, to have a mentor like that who really believes in you. You know, before sometimes we could even believe in ourselves. It's powerful, right? And I've had many of those in my life too, who, yeah. you know, I'm humbled. I pinch myself. I'm like, wow, I, I'm I'm having the privilege to do the kind of work that I think I've been called to do. Yeah. And it took others that could believe in me more than I could believe in myself in those moments. So very, very cool. Very cool. When you think about the world now, I'm going to generalize, we're going to zoom back out. When you look at some of the frustrations that you have in the world of brain health, inclusive of mental health, we're going to say that that's kind of altogether brain health. What are some of the frustrations for you when we look at that space as of today? That's a good question. What are the frustrations? I guess, you know, maybe from a practical perspective is that mental health doesn't get the attention it deserves in the public sphere as far as people talking about the importance of mental health, prioritizing different strategies and interventions that are needed to support mental health. You know, I'll speak around psychotherapy in particular. Mm -hmm. If a person wants therapy and they want it to be paid through our, our public system, you need to see a psychiatrist. Well, there aren't enough psychiatrists to serve the demand. Well, then you go to the private market. And up until recently, there's been generally enough capacity to meet the need. But since COVID, that's been blown out the window. It's so difficult for people to find. So it's not only the capacity issue now, is that when you're in the private market, you have to pay out of pocket. And you may be fortunate enough to have extended health benefits that will cover some but it's always never enough. And not everyone has that privilege. And so it means that a necessary health intervention is literally out of the reach for a huge proportion of the population. And that's not right. Because anybody who has suffered even a little bit can appreciate just how devastating that can be on your entire life. You know, it's one thing I might break my arm and yeah, that's going to be pretty shitty. It's going to, you know, interfere with my quality of life, things I can yeah. do for a time, but it's going to get better when you're suffering from, you know, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, whatever it is that affects everything. It affects how you work, how you play, how you can be a good husband, how you can be a good father. I'm talking from a male perspective. Yeah, of course, of course, of course whether you can be a good hockey coach, and it's like you're not able to thrive in any of your life roles. 
And so it's a huge disservice, not only to the individual and those close to them, but to our society as a whole. So I would say that's my greatest frustration when it comes Mm -hmm. to mental health and, and what we do to support it. Yeah, access, right? And, you know, the opportunities for individuals out there. I mean, I think it's, I think what you're doing and, and so many organizations are working towards doing is, is providing the education, what you do that's so unique for the, those that are courageous enough to do that, to take that test. And it is easy. I did it today. Okay. So you can do it. It's quite accessible. You can just, it's click through. Okay. It's, it's really, really nice. It's, it's the user interface is great. When we think about and this is a curious question just for me, because you know some of what I do a little bit too. How do you think about the relationship between cognition and mental health? What do you think about that relationship? Cognitions play a huge role in, in our mental health and, and sort of from the, the illness end of that spectrum is that people can hold these cognitions or perceptions about themselves and Mm -hmm. and the world around them that can put them in a very difficult place. One of the most ubiquitous things that I encounter with clients that I either treat with therapy or part of their studies is this aspect of not being good enough. So they have this hypercritical voice in their head that you're not good enough. I'm not good enough. So, you know, don't even try you're just going to fail. Something goes wrong in life. Well, of course it did because you're not good enough. And it's there are so many people that have this mm. critical cognitive sort of perception of themselves, but it's not just themselves. It affects how they engage with the world around them, as I said. And it's like, don't even try. Or if you experience some success, then self-sabotage comes in because yeah, yeah, you're not yeah. good enough. You're not good enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean. And it affects everything. It makes me think so much of, well, someone I think you would definitely know, but some of the work of Dr. Rick Hansen too, right? In hardwiring happiness and acknowledging kind of that hardwired negativity bias mm-hmm. that in order to make that more of a positive neural pathway, you actually have to work at, at, oh, at yeah. that as well, right? Because we're kind of hardwired the other way for self-protection purposes. Yeah. Is that, yeah, yeah. That's Abs- kind of what absolutely. we're talking to a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's this, there's a saying, and I didn't come up with it, but I love it. And it really just kind of distills it down to, you know, the, the core issue is like what you think about, you bring about. So if you're walking around with this, like I said, this very critical inner voice that's in your head, always thinking about negative things about yourself or others and, and life in general, well, what do you think is going to happen more often than not? You're going to encounter negative experiences that will reinforce that negative self-perception. It works the other way, too that critical voice can be your best coach. And so that's the work it is about changing the narrative about how you see yourself. And it's like, I'm not that colossal failure that I thought I was the last 52 years. And it's like, I'm actually a competent, caring, kind person. You know, I have people in my life that love me for who I am. And it's like, why the hell am I so hard on myself? And now that sounds very easy. Mm. And I wish it was because I'd love to be unemployed. <laughs> and I'd, I'd be happy just gardening. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. wish I weren't needed doing what I'm doing. Uh, but, you know, that's what therapy is about, is changing the trajectory. Mm, so, so cool. It's so important. And 
you know, it's that repetition, right. Of that negativity. I mean, to undo that. Wow. That's a lot of work and yeah. kudos to you for doing the work that you do. It reminds me of one of my mentors who I mentioned before, Barbara Aerosmith Young, who's kind of this early stage neuroplastician who kind of created this neuroplastic cognitive program. She tells me about, you know, some of the clients that she had who had significant mental health issues due to some of their cognitive challenges, they weren't even yet able to benefit from insight-based therapy. Now, this is a hopeful statement, everybody that is listening. Cognition can change throughout a lifetime. You're not stuck with all the cognitive capacities that you have forever. You can train up some of these networks. I'm reminded of somebody who had been diagnosed with PTSD following the death of a son through cancer. And, uh, those, uh, I can't imagine, right? And he, he couldn't benefit from any sort of therapies. How do you think about kind of the continuum of care and sequencing some of the care and understanding who's ready for what sort of, you know, treatment and when? Well, you know, I think that's a really good question because it speaks to the issue of the spectrum of care. There's yeah. not just one or two things. There's a variety of things that can help. And so, you know, thinking about those folks that may be just so immersed in the muck that they can engage in sort of more introspective mm -hmm. and reflective approaches to therapy. And for those folks, when they come for treatment with me, for example, I have to recognize, okay, we can't work in that kind of way. We essentially need to work on a more sort of behavioral perspective to get some small victories under their belt so right. that they can experience some successes. And then you try to capture the positive affect and the cognitions that come along with those behaviors and start integrating those into their experience of themselves to try to shape a new narrative about themselves in life. And with that, you know, they become more open to that more introspective approach so that they can learn some things about them that perhaps they couldn't previously. And so there's a wide variety of approaches that you can do. You know, I like how you brought up that idea of the spectrum of care and trying to meet the person where they're at and be responsive to their needs in that moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the work that you're doing is so important, but I would assume could be even more impactful with somebody with higher cognitive capacity going into those therapy sessions so that we, we can be more actively engaged in those sessions and benefit yeah. from some of the, the therapeutic approaches that you yeah. offer. So for people that are listening, they're interested, they have, you know, maybe clients that they work with that would really benefit from this, or they themselves are really interested in this and they want to share it. They want to get involved. How do people find your work? How do they get engaged? How do they get access? Well, go to headsupguys.org and take a look at it, share it. That's the best thing that you can possibly do. Just share it. And, you know, you may know somebody in your life that could use it. And maybe you've even tried to have a conversation. They don't seem open to it. But don't give up. You know, the important thing is that, is that you started to create that opening and they may take it later on. You can share it. Hey, it came across this great website. I thought of you and, and just share it. it. And you might follow up with them. Did you get a chance to check out that heads up, guys? And I went there. I did the self-check. It was pretty. That alone can create conversation. If you want to help in a more substantive way, we operate by donations. Without the support from the public, this resource simply, simply would not exist. 
While we're based at UBC, UBC does not fund the program. Many people understandably have that perception, but we are 100% funded by public generosity. And so whether it's $5 or $5,000, every bit helps. So I encourage people to donate that way. And if you want to become involved in what we do, send us an email. And if you have an idea of how you can help out, share it. You know, we are all open. We are not going to pretend that we have all the answers about how we can help the public. So if you have some ideas, share it. I'd love to hear it. Please, please download this episode, share it far and wide. Please, please, please. Also share the assessment, share the website, tweet it out there, get it on your Facebook feeds or whatever, if that's still a thing, you know, email it, text it, check in on your friends. This is a really easy, safe way to do that. It's anonymous, right? So, you know, people can walk through that journey themselves. John, you're an amazing guy. Thank you for doing what you're doing and for following your path and really being so authentic to yourself and your purpose. It's it, it, it really shows. And thanks again. And again, I encourage everybody check out the website. Just do it. Okay. Uh, you'll be happy that you did and share it. So thanks again. We'll see everybody on the next episode. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the BEARS platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so, just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. A training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neural rehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.